whatever the nature of being is, we're a product of it. Logically, it's impossible that we couldn't be. And so whatever the nature of being is, we are particular configurations of what is. And that is our deepest nature. Today on Hyperscale, I'm joined by Max Valmans. He's a psychologist and academic who's been studying consciousness for over 40 years. Max is an Emiratus Professor of Psychology at the University of London, and he has published over 130 publications. Join us as we explore the philosophy of mind, what consciousness really is in the experience of consciousness, and how it may evolve in the face of new technology, such as mind uploading and artificial intelligence. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Hyperscale. It's your host, Briar Prestige. And today I'm joined by Max. And I was telling Max before I come with a lot of questions about consciousness and ready to dive into this fascinating discussion. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. So, Max, you've obviously been exploring consciousness for, I believe, over 40 years now and Mm. what is consciousness maybe that's the the best place for us to start how would you define it okay it's it's a good place to start i've actually got an online paper titled um how to define consciousness and how not to define consciousness so if you put that into a web browser you you'll get it As you know, the word consciousness has got many different meanings, but for the purposes of what I think we'll be discussing, uh, the natural place to start is the simplest place to start. So when I talk about consciousness, or in fact, when most philosophers of mine talk about consciousness, um, they're talking about our ordinary experience and the fact of our ordinary experience. You know, we obviously have brains, we have a physical world around us, and um, we make certain assumptions about the relationship between those. Um, But as a result of our interaction with the physical world, we are able to perceive it. So I can see you, you can see me, and so on. So we're having a visual conscious experience. Now, any discussion of consciousness that focuses on just what the brain is doing or what the physics are about and so on. But that doesn't make a direct contact with our ordinary experience. Winds up not being a discussion of consciousness at all. And the reason it's actually necessary for me to say something as obvious as that is that quite a swathe of philosophy of mind have tried to treat our ordinary experience of consciousness as if it's a secondary issue. And it's very important also in even getting into this discussion to be very clear about what you mean by the term mind as opposed to the term consciousness. A typical way of talking about the mind, say, in uh, modern psychology uh, would be to view it as a form of human information processing. Now, once you get into the mind in that way, you have a natural way of also making links to machines. But um, 
it's also obvious to anyone who's got a psychological background who's been working in this field that most of the operations of the human mind are unconscious. So um, if you're describing the operations of mind, you won't necessarily be describing anything about consciousness. And that's the big point that is also missed in the discussion of machine intelligence and so on. So um, before getting into that you know, deeper topic, which I'm sure you want to get into, uh, in a very simple way, um, that's what I mean. I should also say that there are lively discussions over the last 15 years about the distribution of consciousness, the wider distribution of consciousness, that go all the way to what's called panpsychism, uh, the notion that Everything living is conscious or everything existing, if it's an entity that could be a subject of consciousness, might be conscious. And there's even a serious discussion of something called cosmopsychism, which is the view that the universe in its inherent nature is conscious. Now, and that's true also of Eastern philosophies, where the notion that the universe is such has a consciousness and that we're expressions of that universe and that we participate, at least in principle, in that deeper form of consciousness as well. So uh, I say this only by way of introduction because in saying that when I talk about consciousness, starting with everyday experiences, just as we're having them now, I don't want to exclude the many other ways that human beings can be conscious, which have little to do with our everyday perception. You know, deep experiences of many different kinds, which clearly fall into this domain of filling our awareness. You know, we experience them, but they're quite unlike, perhaps, uh, normal conscious experiences that we have. So that points to, if you like, what I'm talking about, simply picks it out. But then if you ask a question such as, what is it? What is consciousness? Then you have to do something else as well. You have to elaborate on the relationships of what you're pointing to, to everything else that you're interested in. So what's the relationship of consciousness to the brain? Uh, what's the relationship of consciousness to the physical world? And so on. And, and, you know, what are the deeper realms of consciousness and how do they relate to everyday human experience? So, yeah, in a few sentences, well, they're always, I'm afraid a few sentences always become a few paragraphs when I, when I have a go at them. Especially um, when you're talking about that's what such talking a about. complex topic such as consciousness. So absolutely, I'm not surprised. Where is consciousness? Have they identified, is it in the brain? Where? Yeah, where, where is it? <laughs> okay, it's a really good question. 
And I'm going to say something you're going to find a little bit puzzling uh, to start off with, because that's the question or the issue that my own work started with when I first seriously started thinking about it back in 1975. I'd actually been interested in consciousness for some years before that, but this is the point in my academic career when I really wanted to focus on that and decide whether I might have something to say about it or not. My presumptions, if you like, my, my presuppositions about the question that you're asking is, um, for instance, exemplified in visual perception, which is going on between us now. So the default assumption is that the screen we see out here is a physical thing. Light rays are reflected off its surfaces and activate our visual systems, and then that activates the occipital regions of the brain and so on. And so far, we don't have a conscious experience, but then something happens in the brain and we do have a conscious experience. So we have three things. We have the physical world out there in space. We have energies being transmitted you know, to our visual systems. And then something happens to the brain and consciousness arises. Most of Western philosophy of mind over the 20th century anyway, there were two basic positions about the question you ask. One was dualism, which says, yeah, it's nowhere really. It's, you know, you could represent it in a figure as a cloud or something. It's literally outside of space and, and outside of the physical universe. That was Descartes' original idea. And then the other position, which was dominant in the 20th century anyway, is that actually it seems to be like that. It seems to be nowhere, but it's really just a state of the brain. And that was where I started as well. And I thought, well, maybe if that's true, consciousness in the brain, maybe it's like an electromagnetic field in some way that controls the brain's operations in some way. It's emergent and then activates on, on the brain itself. And I th then I thought, well, hang on, there's something wrong with that because I'm not even conscious of having a brain. So how can consciousness be actually altering the brain's operations if I'm not even aware of what the neurons are doing? If it did, um, then it would have to be doing it unconsciously, which is kind of a self-contradiction. And then I was just walking down the street one day and I had an even more disturbing thought, which was if I'm actually simply accurate about what I'm experiencing, the actual phenomenology of my consciousness, say now, or you're, you're actually in the same situation, if you give a complete description of your visual experience now, your conscious experience, then your only visual conscious experience is the screen you see out here in space, um, whatever you see of your body in the room, the sounds that seem to be emanating from space, and so on. And introspectively, you, you have no access at all to any consciousness in your brain or nowhere. Those are theoretical constructions. They're not actual descriptions of your experience. And then I thought, well, 
hang on, there's something wrong with the fundamental presupposition. So in answer to your question, where is my visual experience now? I would say, insofar as it has a location, it has the location it appears to have out there in the room. And you seem to be on my computer screen. That's my only briar visual experience I have. And so what we need to do is alter the basic model a little bit. So we can still say, yeah, there's a physical entity which we'll call a screen out there in space. And, you know, there indeed are electromagnetic energies being um, reflected off the screen and so on and operating my visual system uh, in the way that we understand it too. And then the end result of all that interaction, which is pre-conscious, is me seeing a briar on the screen out there in space. And you see a Max out here in space, out there in space. And so it's reflexive. So there's an entity in space that sends light rays to your visual system, which results in an experience of an entity somewhere out in, there in space. And at close distances, the appearance is roughly where the entity actually is. So that's the beginning of what I call the reflexive model of perception. And the basic rule of thumb, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of everything about the phenomenology of consciousness is simply to try and describe it as accurately as you can without imposing a theory on it, which actually winds up distorting its nature. So this, this, if, if what I'm saying is right and what I'm saying is really simple, then this entire debate about whether the visual experience is nowhere, like in a cloud, or whether it's really in a state of the brain, is simply a debate based on an assumption which has no basis in reality, and that's why they can't resolve it. Okay, that's just the starting point for a, a completely different kind of discussion then. But, but that's, that's uh, you know, interestingly, the question you asked me is precisely where my own thinking started in, in terms of my own work and, and so on. Wow. And what was it like back over 40 years ago when you had this thought and you started doing your work? Because, like, it's a, it's a bit like a wild goose chase. I, I, I perceive this, this, this consciousness topic to be. Where, where did it start? Let's talk, um, talk our audience through your, your career and, and your research and, and what you've discovered over the years. Yeah, okay. It'll have to be a very quick thumbnail. So I suppose my interest in mind and consciousness goes back to teen teenage years, really, and had to do with um, existential questions, existential personal questions. Who am I? You know, what's the nature of reality? And I was a sceptical youth, rather difficult in, in school because I asked difficult questions because you didn't understand the answers, basically. Um, so I was kind of dabbling with these ideas all the way from teenage years, really, and it also fed into a kind of um, teenage alienation, you know, which made those questions acute for me. So I really needed to know, you know, what is the nature of reality? What could I actually believe in? Uh, what's real and, and all that? 
And um, uh, but nevertheless, um, for all sorts of other reasons, when I finished school and and um, had to pick a career, um, my first choice was electrical engineering because I was excited by what was happening in the American space program, and I thought, yeah, it'd be really cool to be in some way involved in all that. And uh, so I, I first degree was in electrical engineering, but in my final year of that degree, um, we had um, a, an essay that we could choose on any topic. And that was back in about 1962. And the topic I chose was um, thinking machines, which is not a thousand miles from the sorts of things you want to talk about. And even in those days, the, the, there was a field. So there was a field called cybernetics, which is the, the whole um, um, science of uh, self-organizing control systems or self, self-controlling self systems and so on. And there was also the beginning of um, early pattern recognition devices. And those early pattern recognizers were the forerunners of AI because they were multi-layered and, 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 and so on, but in a very simple sort of way. Um, and, but I realized as I was doing that, that, that in the end, I wanted to do something else. And I, even when I was an electrical engineer, I was uh, reading philosophy and psychology. And, and while practicing as an engineer, I, I was also studying to become a psychologist. And, and, and um, in the end, I moved from one field to the other and um, through a long process that I won't get into because we haven't got much time. There's so many other things to discuss. I wound up at the University of London with the possibility of doing a PhD in psychology. And I really wanted to do something on consciousness. And the first thing I did was to build a machine which could expand our consciousness so um, there are lots of ways you could do that in principle, but I built a machine that could double the range of human hearing, for example, because I was interested in why our senses were tuned in the way that they normally are, when other animals have their senses tuned in lots of different places. Unfortunately, the answer to that was too obvious to get a PhD, which is that our senses are tuned in the way that they normally are because that's where the information of most use to our particular form of life happens to be. So I then spent years organising that machine into a different kind of hearing aid for the deaf. And only in 1975 was able to get back to the question of consciousness. But once I went through that process that I described to you about, um, hang on, I've got all this wrong. Something's wrong with the way we're thinking about things. Um, I then spent nine months trying to work out what the consequences of that might be. If I made that assumption about consciousness, how would consciousness relate to unconscious processing? Um, How does our conscious experience relate to what we normally think of as the physical world and so on? And there were many questions of that kind, you know, how does subjectivity relate to objectivity, for example? If I say this out here is part of my experience, What does that mean as far as objective science is concerned? Or objectivity? And so on and so on. And my my kind of 
assumption at the time was that I'd probably got something wrong because it seemed to be such a different starting place. So I had to kind of trace through in rough all these relationships to see if in the end, you know, I'd run into a dead end or a, what they call in philosophy a, a reductio ad absurdum, you know, like an absurd conclusion, which means the starting point had to be wrong. And um, I found in the end after seven, sorry, nine months of that, um, that I found my way all the way back to the beginning again. So whether that whole framework of thinking was correct or not is one thing, but whether it could be self-consistent, you know, internally coherent was another thing, and it seemed to pass that test as far as I could see. And then I spent the next nine months reading everything I could read uh, about everything that had been written about consciousness that I could lay my hands on, because I thought, well, if it's coherent and it's a different starting place, then there are bound to be lots of people who've gone there already. Still, this is before deciding that I actually had something to say about it. And that was very interesting because having gone through all that process myself independently, it was very interesting to see where others had gone down similar paths, but then gone off in a different direction. And so I could make a judgment on each occasion whether I wanted to go with where they were going or whether I had good reasons not to. And so I did another moment of that. And then it, it seemed to me I did have something I could say, uh, at least as a kind of academic thing, you know, right or wrong. Mm. And um, it took me six months to gather all my notes together. And then I worked on a manuscript for 10 years before I published anything, which was something like 600 pages, 24 chapters, completely unpublishable, was the the background to my thinking. And then I thought, um, I'll never get this published. So um, started publishing papers. And uh, a couple of years after I started publishing papers, someone just came into my office and said, um, uh, we're looking for books. And I said, well, I could write a book on consciousness. And uh, in two further years, I produced Understanding Consciousness, which is my main book. But um, uh, one, of my, one of my, well, the first paper I ever published was exactly on the topic that we started with, called Consciousness, Brain and the Physical World. And the second paper, which was published in the Behavior and Brain Sciences, was called Is Human Information Processing Conscious? And that second paper takes us directly into the kind of issues I think you want to get into. I've got a few questions um, in relation to uh, what you've just described. Would you say that after all these years and doing all of this research that you have been able to answer that question that you had back when you were a young boy growing up, that existential almost crisis, those existential questions that you had? Yeah, um, but, but that's a different story. So it's a, it's a much bigger story. So, 
So I wasn't just doing academic work. I was also exploring, you know, inner states over many, many years. And, and um, um, one thing that's really nice about this topic is that although you can, you have to be very precise about your academic work, you know, and always feed into an existing conversation, if you like, in a way that everyone will understand, uh, or you hope they will understand, um, there's nothing about the topic that forces you to stop your own explorations there. So, so the the whole business of, you know, how does my experience relate to the deeper nature of reality is a big topic. And I've explored that in many ways, not just theoretically. I've done it theoretically. And I've also done it personally in terms of, you know, my own inner journeys. If, and there, there are many different paths you can take for exploring those topics personally. Well, let, let me come straight out and say, look, I'm 81 now. So, so you know, as an aged, aged human being, <laughs> I'm in a much better state than I was when I was 18. You know, if we reverse those numbers, yeah, I, I do have a feeling of of having moved a lot on on those deeper issues and feeling comfortable with the place that I've moved to. Let's just leave it to that just for the moment. I think it's interesting when we're growing up and we find out about death, and oh my God, it is a horrifying thought. Sure. We're we're young. We we find out one day we're going to die, and even myself, I've had many different. Uh, discussions with about existence and what's the purpose of everything and stuff like this when when I was growing up especially in my early 20s and like is consciousness is it something that that goes after death because I've also been reading a book recently by Dr Bruce Grayson and he was sharing lots of quite interesting <laughs> discussions in it about how when people had died on the operating table and he would be out in the hall and talking to somebody and have a stain down his front and things like this and he would go back to the room and people would say I saw you I saw that stain and describe situations that only they could have been part of so does our consciousness die when we die like tell us a bit about this okay um, another big topic, and and um, you know Bruce Grayson is is you know a, a leading researcher in that particular area, as is the um, unit in which he works, which is the division of perceptual studies at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. They're not the only ones, you know. There are many others who've been involved in this kind of thing, who have been taking phenomena like that very seriously and trying to be as rigorous as they can, um, but nevertheless coming up with stories and reports and so on, which don't fit into our worldview. So the question that you ask has very much to do with the, the deep debate about whether reality can be fully described in terms of uh, conventional materialist reductionism, the notion that the whole world is physical and that we too are wholly physical. And so when our physical bodies die, 
nothing of us remains. And equally, the presumption that goes with that is that our consciousness is a product of what the brain is doing. So if the producer dies, the product dies. End of story. Now, uh, Bruce Grayson's work and the work of others to do with near-death experiences and so on is, is pretty well documented. Um, another area that they do in that um, division but, um, is, is past life memories. Now, again, um, if you're a materialist reductionist, as most people are, um, the stories that come from young children, they're usually under five, about detailed memories they have of actually having been born in another family, sometimes in a nearby village or something of that kind, be treated with scepticism simply because it doesn't fit into our sense of what, what is scientifically possible. But there's some very clear cases uh, of, the, of the sort that you mentioned, which suggest that information of some sort relating to our lives does persist and, and sometimes, you know, is experienced as a past life memory. And there, there are various signs of, of, with some of these children, of physical changes in their body which relate to, um, for instance, the things that have happened to the people that they believe themselves to have been in some other place that are known not to them as young children, but to the people who, with the families, for example, of the people in that place. So that would be like one line of evidence. Another has to do with a completely different area of concern, which is, is kind of simpler to get at in a way and completely relevant to the question that you ask which is, how could we be conscious at all, given what we understand about the nature of the brain, the body, and the rest of the physical world? And although in the 20th century, um, the default assumption within neuroscience, for example, was that it's just waiting around the corner, you know, okay, the neuroscience hasn't discovered yet, um, what might be the necessary and sufficient neural conditions for the production of a conscious experience. Nevertheless, you know, 10 years, 20 years, you name it, um, that will happen. But even neuroscientists who, who are deeply into this at the, at the lead end of their, their field have started to move into a position of saying, Actually, there's something more fundamental here that, that it doesn't look possible in principle, if you like, without, without invoking magic to see how something like a brain alone could produce something like a conscious experience. So every, if you read a neurophysiological textbook, you know, everything in the book will be how one set of brain circuits, you know, might affect other brain circuits or neurochemistry. It's all, if you like, within the domain of third-person science. But 
you can write a perfectly good book about all that and never mention conscious experience. You might have a chapter on it and then, but, 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 but those neuroscientists who are most interested in consciousness have come to accept, and, and this is a re-acceptance because the same thing happened at the turn of the 20th century in you know, late um, 1890s and so on, almost the same debates, that you can get, in principle, the, the, the neural correlates of a particular conscious experience, but you can't show how that translates into an experience as such. In other words, you could say, whenever I'm having a visual experience of this kind, maybe this particular pattern of activation is happening in the visual cortex of this kind. But but the relationship between the two is kind of open-ended. And then, um, uh, uh, yeah, I suppose my most downloaded paper is called The Evolution of Consciousness. And and that, that paper actually goes into the whole topic of you know, at what point in evolution did consciousness emerge? And there you get a whole spectrum of theories, all the way to only humans are conscious, only brains of a certain complexity are conscious, only um, um, creatures that actually move could be conscious because, you know, they, they, have, they approach and they avoid, so they need something like pleasure and pain. The problem is, no matter what functional organisation you pick, you always have this this question of, yeah, I can see how it functions, and I can see what added functions are created as you get them these these systems to be more complex, but nothing there tells you why the light of consciousness should switch on, and that's what motivates panpsychism, which says, look, consciousness is more basic in the universe. You know, but panpsychism tends to talk about tiny things. So, you know, the smallest thing that, that could be an entity could be a conscious entity. And and then you have the problem with how do these consciousnesses combine together? It's called the combination problem. And then there's an even deeper theory which says, look, the primary ground of being is conscious. And... And if you say that, and actually that's where I've come to, I actually have a chapter on that called Is the Universe Conscious? Reflexive Monism and the Ground of Being. That's that's a 2021 chapter, also online, which gives the argument in more detail. Um, once you say that, and you say, well, how does that affect me? You know, what's it got to do with the question you asked? You know, what about my consciousness? then it's quite useful to think about that in psychological terms. If you think of of the human mind as a kind of iceberg, you know, floating in the sea. This is this common metaphor in psychology. And just the tip of the iceberg is sticking out of the water. And that tip of the iceberg corresponds to our conscious experience now. Everything we know, we currently conscious experience, that's at our conscious tip. And then just below the tip, you know, but in the water, not, not conscious for us at this moment, 
are all the processes that, that serve the conscious tip. You know, this cognitive processes, for example, which enable us to see and so on. And there will also be, as you go a little bit deeper, personal, unconscious states of a kind which are discussed, for instance, in uh, psychodynamics and, you know, say, Freudian theory and, and so on, that are still personal to us, you know, our own shadows and, you know, drives and, you know, which we're not really conscious of and so on. You go deeper still down the iceberg and you get to things that are true for all humans. And that's sometimes called transpersonal, unconscious, things that are as true for you as they are for me and, and humanity as a whole. And then you keep going down into the sea which you can think of as the complete reality of what actually forms this universe, as well as creatures like us. But the truth is that the iceberg is a product of the sea, couldn't be otherwise. Whatever the nature of being is, we're a product of it. Logically, it's impossible that we couldn't be. And so whatever the nature of being is, we are particular configurations of what is. And that is our deepest nature. And then the question you ask about, you know, might something persist when the body dies? That's conscious. The answer would be, if you go this route, that yes, bodily consciousness dies with the dying of the body. But if, for example, it turns out that the findings of the kind that you talk about, you know, earlier on about near-death studies and, and, and um, um, past life memories and such like are true, you know, and I'm perfectly happy to be open to that, then information about our lives is in some way retained somehow. And in any case, even if it isn't, if you think of it as waves on the sea, and the sea is just the nature of whatever it is, and we're momentary configurations of that, like a wave on the sea, once the wave goes, the sea remains in the same way that energy can neither be created nor destroyed, if that energy turns out to be conscious, then that can neither be created nor destroyed. It simply is. So that's a quick tour. And, and for all sorts of reasons, that's where I go with it. That's actually what I think is the case. And... and um, you know, I've spent my whole life debating with, with, you know, awfully clever people. Um, so I'm well aware of what they think. And, and, and nevertheless, for all sorts of reasons we simply wouldn't have time to get into, um, that's my feeling about the whole thing. And as well as something that I've written about to some extent, you know, in this 2021 chapter in particular, Okay. 
Wow. <laughs> I feel like I've got even more questions than what I had before. That is um, really fascinating to, to think <laughs> about all of this. And so, so when we're thinking about this almost like collective consciousness, say humanity was to come together and everyone was to have more awareness about their consciousness, could we like make things happen? Like could we move things like with the power of our minds together? Like a hive mind? <laughs> there are all sorts of stories about things like that, but 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 in a way the 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 we could make things happen in a much more obvious way. So so there's nothing stopping us from self-destruction apart from our belief systems and our feeling of isolation, alienation, and, and compulsive behavior. Uh, there's something kind of mad about um, our attitudes to climate change, our attitudes towards truth, the othering that is typical in our world. You know, the, the defining of self in contradistinction to everybody else. Once you get, if you, if you actually have a realization or a deep feeling that we're all manifestations of the same thing, literally, dressed up in different ways, playing different roles, um, uh, with our own dramas, which we have to, you know, find our way through. But we're nevertheless deeply connected in actuality. That itself has enormous transformative potential, because if if we we are connected and the same, the the possibility of changing, you know, our relationship to this planet suddenly becomes obvious. There, there's deep madness, actually, in our social world at the moment, you know, and people who are very powerful and driven and, and, and accumulative are actually often deeply troubled beings. They don't have peace of mind. Um, they're very bright often, but they don't have any kind of wisdom, I would say. Can you imagine a politics where we actually believed all that and 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 treated each other that way? And and uh, you know, well, I, I think one actually has to get into the to the whole business of having mystical experiences, for example, which. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I think some of you, you you want to ask about death, and so on. And and one thing that's really interesting in current um, explorations of the mind is the whole resurgence of psychedelics. And one fascinating and relevant finding in all that is that one of the one of the um, powerful reasons for introducing um, say, um, psilocybin therapy or possibly LSD therapy or something of that kind into the, the, the alleviation of suffering of those who are um, diagnosed with terminal cancer is that the depression that, that often 
as, as you know follows from knowing you're about to die and having all the fears that we do about the question that you ask, you know, that this is going to be the end of everything, can be dramatically transformed by a mystical experience generated, well, it's not generated by, enabled by, say, a psilocybin experience. And uh, the effects have been quite dramatic. And basically, it's not that people don't think they're going to die and it doesn't mean that the cancer's cured. They just don't feel about death in the same sort of way because they've experienced something different about their own nature. And, and that's salutary in relationship to the question you ask. And, and, and I should say this as well, that, you know, I can, I can say these stories, you know, chat on as much as I like. And I never try and persuade anybody of this. I can, all I can really do in an intellectual discourse of the sort that we're having is to say, look, these are perfectly plausible options to entertain, you know, given the problems posed by consciousness and so on. And you, you can't really be convinced of, for instance, what I'm talking about, consciousness in the ground of being and so on, if you're intellectually honest with yourself without actually having such experiences. You, I'm simply going on my own, you know, background of paid-up skeptic, you know, towards anything that anyone told me if I didn't in some way experience it for myself and so on. So, so... That's part of the picture as well. That that, um, but there are an indefinitely large number of ways of experiencing our connections, which fall short of that. That's that's far more important than than you know somehow um, having the cleverness to somehow you know take carbon out of the atmosphere, um, and you know in spite of the fact that we're pumping more than we could ever extract when the obvious um, solution is to not when you're digging when you're we're in a hole you know stop digging is usually the best um, the best the best um, uh, way of going forward so other than psychedelics someone listening to this podcast who is interested in tapping more into their their consciousness how could they do this or having more control of their unconscious? mind as well oh the, the, the indefinitely large number of ways so so you know, there are many many um valuable practices within buddhism for example there are um there are very interesting practices to do with with actually trying to do an introspective observation of um, what happens when your mind is completely still? And then you kind of notice that there's still this consciousness. So there are no thoughts. And then you can get into deep states where uh, your attention is so focused that the, the, so to speak, contents of experience fall away. And, and a little bit like the, 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 the ripples on the sea die down. And it's only when they die down that you have a sense of what the sea. And um, people also have spontaneous experiences of this kind, which can um, happen to them as a consequence of 
say, some traumatic event, but or they can just happen. They, they, they might find themselves, you know, uh, in nature on a beautiful day and then, you know, something about the state they're in triggers them into feeling this kind of unity with everything. And there's, a, there's an enormous literature on all that. Um, so there are many, many different methods of, of coming into a sense of the more than human. I could put it that way as well. And the sense of aliveness in everything. Um, uh, it's quite topical at the moment. People are discovering things about nature, for example, you know, about its intelligence, its interconnectedness. This is also something which, you know, is kind of in the background of the sort of things that interest you because a lot of the, the, the kind of technological stuff that people get excited about are very me, self, you know, I want to do this, I want to do that, and somehow ignore the fact that we're embedded deeply into relatedness. You know, our bodies themselves are complexes of biological organisms and that our actual experiences is this kind of higher-level version of, you know, this enormously complex set of processes that constitute our embodiment. And, and we're deeply interrelated to the information which is all around us which isn't just social, you know, other people, obviously, and, and cultures and so on, but the whole of nature which supports us. And, and to get a sense of the interconnectedness, yeah, a lot of people do that in lots of different ways, actually. And, um, you know, anyone who has a love of nature, you know, won't want to destroy it. Um, anyone who feels connected will value their interconnectedness. And, and the last thing you want to do is to, to tamper with that. You know, and the whole business of love comes into it as well, um, um, deeply. So I want to be talking about things like that, you know, if you're talking about what's going to make a big difference as opposed to you know, colonizing Mars, for example, which we've got a, <laughs> the, the chances of making Mars as beautiful as the planet that we're living on is, is for the birds. It's a little dusty on Mars, you isn't know, it? It's, it's a kind of insanity, in my view. It really is. So do you worry, Max, that with our reliance on things such as phones and Netflix and social media, like... People are addicted. If people don't have ADHD, they've got attention deficit traits now anyway because of this barrage sure. of information around us. Do you worry that perhaps people aren't sitting and being and experiencing their consciousness how they should be because we're just so – we're like algorithms now or we're controlled by the algorithms <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I, I, I just don't, I don't do social media for precisely the reasons you talk about, because you get lost in it. You'd and, be horrified what, if you saw my phone what, usage, what, Max. What's, <laughs> no, 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 I'd feel empathetic. No, <laughs> not at all. 
You would be horrified. <laughs> I, I can see you're connected anyway, you know. <laughs> now, one, 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 one very sad irony, as far as I'm concerned, is that, you know, all those brilliant guys, you know, in Silicon Valley who um, worked out how to make these things addictive are very careful not to send their own children to, you know, uh, schools or, or, you know, expose them to precisely the, they know it's addictive and so they keep their kids well away from it and send their children to Steiner schools and that kind of stuff. And, and that's very sad, you know, when actually these brilliant guys ought to be devoting themselves to not how to make more money, how to beat the competition, um, but to, you know, preserving all that's wonderful about humanity, really. I, I mean, another bit of me, you know, just thinks humans are amazing. But I think we're seriously at risk of not surviving. You know, all the things we're talking about are part of the, the fabric of, of the problem here. And all the way to the assumptions we make about the nature of reality, you know, and that, that yeah, if, if the case is, for example, that we're just bodies, when our bodies die, um, end of everything, um, and that those bodies have um, evolved as a consequence of um, a, a version of Darwinian evolution where the fittest survive, thanks, and the, the ones that don't reproduce well enough don't survive. Uh, it's not surprising if this is your belief system and it's not surprising, uh, you know, we're in, in a kind of postmodern world where all the old belief systems have fallen away and, and, you know, there isn't a kind of firm ground on which to stand. And then you think, well, you know, if this is all there is to life, I might as well get as much as I can for myself, you know, and have, a, a, you know, as hedonistic a, a ride as I can, because it's, you know, it's meaningless anyway. And, and, if you actually have a different feeling about the whole thing, and I, I, I do stress the feeling bit, it, it can't just be an intellectual thing. You can entertain something intellectually, but you've got to actually kind of either feel it or experience it in some way. Um, then you're just naturally more inclined to, 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 to not in the end, get addicted in, into these things because you can feel what they're doing to you. You know, we're, we're losing touch with our own inner states. It almost has to go right into the educational process where, where children have to, as a norm, um, be more mindful of what, what, what kind of things are painful, unhealthy what sort of things really make them happy and 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 unfortunately a lot of that is being driven by our economic model so so for example in the states the, the <laughs> beware of a bit, little bit of psychology because you can misuse it that i was amazed by i think his name was bernays who who um, um, um developed the idea of satisficing as opposed to something which satisfies, it's something that satisfies. And something that satisfies is something that gives you a buzz when you buy it, you know, like the latest phone or whatever. And, and 
but it doesn't satisfy because the buzzkill is a bit like the tree, you know, presents, you know, you open them and then you put them aside, you know, and you might never play with them again. Um, it's, and, and you know, the, 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 they peddle dreams, you know, if only I had the latest X, Y, or Z, um, I will be happier and, and, and so on. And, and, and in this case, you know, if you get back to the, the whole social media thing and the addictive thing and so on, and um, there are many aspects to it, but one central aspect is the problem of identity. Who am I? And needing to kind of find who I am, you know, in terms of how many clicks I get and, and um, you know, how many people like me. Obviously, there's no harm in wanting to be liked and, 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 and so on and, and be noticed and so on. But it's not embodied. And there's another story here, you know, which has to do with the nature of the human body, if you like. If you're starting to talk about mind uploading and all that stuff, God help you if you actually manage to do it, because you might be trapped in that then. <laughs> now, this is a sting in the tail of the whole process, as far as I can see. And, and um, you know, when really what you have to accept is, yeah, I'm living in this body. It's, you know, kind of a great instrument in many ways and you know suffering of course lots of you know illnesses and stuff as well but but it's part of being alive in this world in in this this dream if you like and and in terms of people's interconnection it's a little bit like everyone's in separate bubbles you know which are kind of communicating one bubble to the other and and you're not getting the, the the bubbles to touch properly or overlap, you know, and you know to what you might call an intimate relationship, you know, which is a, requires a kind of openness and 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 um, being in the momentness and human embodiedness. You know, we are humans. Let's let's have the human. Let's have the human experience. Most people are not having a full human experience and, and not through any fault of their own often. It's, it's that we've created cultures that don't foster it and, and you know, traumatise children and, and, and another crazy thing is where we're working harder and harder, uh, you know, with all this technology and have less and less time, and so on. So, so it's obviously addictive. Mm. You know, it's it's a drug, and it's not doing us any good. And 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 so, um, it's not as if I'm saying anything new here. I'm just saying um, that there are all sorts of techniques available for stepping back from all that mm. and embedding that to some extent in in our education and and self awareness of what we're doing, otherwise we'll do it compulsively and, and, and the end product could, could be quite bad, I think. I think the interesting thing about the brain as well is that, well, I will even just speak from, from personal experience here. So I went and got a brain test um, and they put all these electrodes on my brain to see how my brain was functioning. And if you had have asked me, I would have said, yeah, I'm a bit tired, but I live a, a very busy lifestyle. I, I travel a lot. I run multiple businesses, but no worries. I'm, 
you know, no tired than the next person next to me. I'm not stressed. I'm not this. I'm not that. Well, lo and behold, I got my brain scan back and it told me that I was, I had chronic fatigue, like really, really bad fatigue. So I went and got, um, I've had some, some biofeedback sessions where I, I, I watch YouTube and it shows me what my brain is doing well and, and gives it that feedback. And oh my God, I feel like such a different person now. And the reason I wanted to, um, to, to sort of share this, I guess, is that I think the interesting thing about our, our brain is that we don't necessarily, we might not perceive what's wrong with it because it becomes our new baseline, our normal for us. So um, yeah, I just thought that was such an interesting thing to um, actually go out there and, and to realize the damage, I guess, that social media and these algorithms had, had done to my brain. It was fascinating. And um, jumping into the man and machine bit. So we started talking a little bit about man and machine with the, the algorithms now, but I want to go further than this. So um, what is your thoughts about the concept of mind uploading? Because transhumanists and futurists, they often argue that in the future, we could upload our brain to a cloud. There could be multiple different avatar versions of us. You mentioned before about potentially getting stuck in the mind upload. And I, I mean, that sounds blimmin' awful, but if you could talk us through this, your thoughts about this concept, would it be possible? At the moment, it's not possible. Usually, um, when we're talking about mind uploading, my assumption is that what people are talking about is um, uploading of a knowledge system, you know, a general knowledge system, which somehow encodes, you know, all our past life experience, you know, our in this life experiences and somehow somehow encodes our whole history and, and whatever. And, and certainly last time I looked, you know, we know something about what's going on in the brain, you know, when learning takes place and so on in terms of the synaptic growth of, you know, well-used um, connections and, and you know, shifts, therefore, in, in, in which kind of act circuits get easily activated versus not easily activated and so on. But as far as I know, um, nobody quite knows how, you know, all that is retrieved, you know, in memory, you know, at least physiologically and, and so on. And so it's not like, you know, lifting the hard drive of the brain and loading it onto another hard drive or in the cloud or whatever. Um, the other thing that's, um, and yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I once wrote a chapter on could robots be conscious in in um, in understanding consciousness, and that that was a one one chapter, chapter five, and and that had to do with a particular theory of of consciousness, and and the the theory of consciousness which um, um, makes that sound like a possibility is is called computational functionalism. In other words, the only thing that's that makes a mind a mind is is the computations that it carries out. In its more extreme versions, consciousness itself is just a particular kind of functioning as well. 
so it's a reductionist position and it's 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 a reductionist not so much to structure but to functioning and and indeed um one thing that's kind of happening with with you know cleverer and cleverer machines is that they're functioning in more and more clever ways you know learning how to learn and, and all that um but is that me now for start uh, it's been a much debated issue so so um uh, presumably somebody who wanted to upload their minds onto a machine and become immortal that way would hope that they were conscious just uploading you know the information the computations you know in silicon that are produced by as far as we can tell you know the brain would simply produce a functioning system and uh, as i said right at the beginning i you know started life as an electrical engineer and um, it, it sort of was always obvious to me that, that if I built a machine um, that could function in a very clever way and I've got the, the, the model right, you know, you name it, a task or something of that sort, um, um, voice recognize or speak or whatever, that if I switch it on and I give it the right inputs, it sh should produce the right outputs because I programmed it appropriately but whether it was conscious or not in operating appropriately is kind of tangential because all the functioning is provided by the functioning not by some associated consciousness yeah so one scenario in mind uploading would be that you could in fact tap into hypothetically you know, all the information and somehow accessible to the brain and stick that onto a machine. But it might not be conscious. There, you know, there's no way of telling from that. Now, another possibility is if um, computational functionalism is true, that consciousness is nothing more than the functioning, is that if you replicate the functioning appropriately, then by definition, you're conscious in an appropriate way as well. And that, that, that would make that a possibility. Um, this is just the first pass at all this. We're going to get deeper into it in a second. A third possibility <laughs> is that it isn't just the functioning that matters. It's also what you're made of that matters. So, um, if you're a machine constructed out of silicon or, you know, loaded onto, you know, um, the, the cloud somewhere, but you, you haven't got a body of this kind, then any expense you might have might, you know, be able to, well, well, you might be able to, this system, you know, your mind in inverted commas, your silicon mind, if let's call it, uh, might function appropriately, but, it would have a kind of machine silicon type experience. What we're having is a particularly human experience, you know, what it feels like to be a human. Um, if, if I replaced all this um, with machine parts, then all the contributions that go into the flavor of being a human, if you like, you know, wouldn't, 
probably be rep repl replicable in other parts. That's on the theory that both what you're made of and how you program what you're made of um, makes a difference. But if we now, um, you know, cut to the chase a little bit and, and say, well, what if you could do it? Um, let's say what we think of as the human soul or something, you know, there's something essential about us, you know, even which might survive bodily death. What, what if, if um, um, you, you somehow managed to upload that into the system and it was immortal? Then you would be stuck there in the way that I, uh, I suggested to you. This, is, this could be regarded as completely dystopian because if the default position for us humans is that the deepest part of us can't die, it just is. But you've stuck, you know, the individual bit of yourself out of out of all that. Uh, I mean, this is this is just a dystopian sci-fi scenario. Um, I, I don't think this is possible, you know. But I'm giving you some of the options. Then 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 you you kind of it's a, a situation. Be careful of what you wish for, because you you might have somehow trapped that bit. I don't believe any of this, by the way, but but I'm simply giving you some options. In a way, the urge to do this, you know, that the whole thing of being immortal, if you if you like, is 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 driven by this fear of individual death. Uh, so it's it's driven by fear to begin with, and and it simply doesn't. You know, it's not just an intellectual exercise. All that money being put into that, you know, is is driven by something. You what know, if a it's bit more compulsive? What if it's that. driven by curiosity? Sorry? What if it's driven by curiosity? Yeah, no, I was going to go there. No, I was going to go there actually. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, it's a good point. And and now I can imagine, you know, the engineer in me, if you like, you know. And, and we're like that, aren't we? We, we, we? we like to see, you know, what's possible. And, and, and uh, you know, all sorts of brilliant minds who just enjoy playing with what's possible. And, and, and you know, I applaud all that. But, but you know, obviously, if, if that's just set loose, uh, because you know, some really powerful things get invented. There are real dangers. And so it is really important to, to, to not just let, you know, inventions loose on the world. You know, wiser people in politics and, you know, and, 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 and the fields involved, you know, who know what, what people are doing and who can understand it and can work out some of the consequences and so on are, are there and monitoring, you know, some of these things. It's it's because it will get out of hand, no question, I think. Mm. And and one of the problems with some of this AI is that the question that I raise, which you raise with the mind uploading, um, yeah, I'm saying, look, you could upload the information and still not, you know, what you've uploaded isn't you. And it isn't you anyway. It would be another like you. I ought to mention that there are lots of ways of immortalizing yourself. Um, you're doing it in this podcast, you know, as long as the 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 um, the, the, <laughs> the podcast remains available on the web, you know, there's the briar. 
you know, and there's the max. Or you can write a book. You know, if you're simply trying to upload your information and your ideas and so on, well, uh, we've been doing that since time immortally. You know, it's really the feeling of meanness that they're trying to keep. And 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 as I say, the you know, basically they're assuming an answer, probably a false answer to the question, "Who am I?" I was speaking to a, a futurist called Gray Scott recently, and the way that he described artificial intelligence is he described it as this digital consciousness. It will evolve to become a digital consciousness in the fu- future, and it would be essentially mimicking our consciousness so we will have trouble as humans potentially identifying its consciousness because it won't be conscious but the way it will be interacting with us will have us tricked it will act like it's got feelings and thoughts and rights and all of these sorts of things and he called it digital mimicry and it made me think about how all of these wonderful things that come with humans and then all these really nasty, terrible things that come with humans as well. And with, with that in mind, we're, we've got the, the good guys, the bad guys, and we're just a complex species. So, of course, therefore, there is going to be good AI and bad AI because at the end of the day, technology is neutral, right? And it's the way it's, it's reflecting us. What's your thoughts about this? Well, yeah, no, I mean, it's, I think he's absolutely right um, that um, there's no no problem in principle in programming um, a machine or, you know, a, a data set or whatever um, to respond as if it were conscious because, and in fact, people have been going down that road already. It's, it's a simple question of what, you know, it's like the old Turing test, isn't it? So, so you, 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 you simply ask yourself as a programmer, what's an appropriate response to this situation or to this question or something of that kind? And um, uh, for example, it'd be quite easy. I, I could think of a very easy way for a machine to respond appropriately to the question, are you conscious or not? Yeah. And um, the simple way you could do it is um, a kind of um, basic um, fact about consciousness in humans, which was known since the time of William James, really, was that, you know, of all the information, we, you know, that that is kind of, um, um, impinging on our senses at any particular moment in time, we need to select just that bit which is of most interest or importance and so on. So there needs to be an attentional mechanism that selects from the array of available information. And once it's selected, it's fed into something like a, a primary memory or a working store or something of that sort, or, you know, in one modern theory of consciousness, you know, into a global workspace or something of that kind. It's the stuff we're working on at this moment, and that's what gets to be conscious. Yeah, and and so if you're building a machine that that started to behave a bit like we do, 
you'd build in an attentional system and then you'd also, you know, um, have something like a working store where that which is attended to is currently being processed and so on. And then uh, if you wanted to, to emulate, um, you know, an answer to a question, you know, are you conscious in this moment? Um, the machine could simply check whether there's any information in its global workspace and, and say yes. Or if you ask a more precise question, are you conscious of this picture at this moment? It could check whether there's a representation in you know, the global workspace. And if there is a representation in the global workspace, it, or it is programmed to come out with a YES response. And that would be simulating what we do, you know, easy. Um, but would it be conscious? Uh, not by virtue of just doing that. So, so you know, you're, you're simply begging the question in a way. And, and um, um, uh, as I say, within philosophy of mind, I, I didn't really go into this properly. Um, but if you if you follow the whole run of the argument. Um, about um, <laughs> you, you've got to separate two things clearly and people don't which is what are the conditions for the existence of consciousness yeah that's the first thing and then a second question is what are the added conditions for a particular configuration of consciousness sometimes I, I wonder if are we doing enough as a human species to be evolving our minds, our consciousness, or if, if we're not moving fast enough in the sense of AI and robotics seems to be moving at quite a dizzying pace. And then, of course, on our side and our meat sack, so to speak, we've got all of these rules and, and regulations, which make complete sense, by the way. I'm not saying that we should all go out tomorrow and get neural links like all those monkeys that died. Um, but if we don't, as a human species, almost evolve with, with technology, is that, will we be left behind? I don't see why. We use all that technology all the time. So, you know, you were admitting to carrying your phone around with you all the time. For 13 hours. Okay. Uh, no. Oh, no. Oh, God. Lots My of work. Sympathies. It's lots of work, anyway. mind you. Lots of work. <laughs> lots of good well, things. Absolutely, absolutely. But, but, but can you imagine, can you imagine a situation where you couldn't get away from that? I, so I somehow, survive. you know, the equivalent of your, your phone is implanted in your brain. I mean, to me, that is a complete dystopia. You know, we, we are evolving with machines without implanting them. Um, the, the nice thing about uh, doing it the way we're doing it now is that we stick them in, you know, we throw them in the dustbin if we don't want them anymore. Um, I, the, the only advantage of, of well, I, I personally can't see any real advantage of, of shoving it in the brain uh, apart from seeming to be very bright. Um, at the moment, we've all got access to the internet and, and, and to the whole you know, and, and we're, we also have access to the, you know, machinations of chat, GPT. GPT, you know? yeah. 
the fact that they're they're not actually you know wired into our bodies thank god not you know uh, the the there may be specific um you know cases where that becomes advantageous for example if bits of our bodies don't function or bits of our brain don't function and 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 so as medical prostheses you know there's a natural field of beneficial exploration that can be done i i i got involved in that a little bit when i was doing work on hearing aids you know and and was very interested in auditory implants for for example for people who had no hearing whatsoever or you know maybe restoring vision and so on you know anyone with access to a computer or a phone has access to enormous amounts of intelligence even though it's situated outside of our bodies and and we can make a choice um i'm not sure implanting them would 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 help in fact there's a dystopian feel about it actually instinctively uh, i i'd never say never you know but that's my current feeling about the whole thing i i in the same way that i'm much happier thank you without social media mm. i don't necessarily want access to all the world's information at, at any point in time i i might just want to walk by the river or row down the river which i also do oh that sounds very pleasant down here yeah max thinking a little bit sure. about privacy and and this kind of connectedness when when we're thinking about neural links and mind uploading and having th- things in our brain um obviously this comes with a lot of ethical considerations and dilemmas i was uh, reading an article about this lady in australia who uh, suffered from very severe schizophrenia and she in seizures and she couldn't go out and function on a daily basis and she got this mind implant and it changed her life. But then, unfortunately, the company who had given it to her went bankrupt and she tried to mortgage her house. She tried, she fought in court. She tried to do everything in her power to keep this brain implant, but they they took it out and they took it away from her, which I, I, th- I think is a, a very interesting dilemma. Um, and when we're thinking about having these things in our brain, and you even spoke about it before, do we need all of this access to information? It's nice to be able to go for a walk down the river, etc. If we're all connected to this information all the time, then how are we going to, yeah, how, how are we still going to, how are we going to know what's like our consciousness and what's just this barrage of information? Like how, how are we going to separate ourselves from this, do you think? What do we need to be mindful of? my strong instinct based on where I'm at with all this is don't do it (laughs) don't do it no no you've named no hang on you you've named a situation which was in that bag of obvious exceptions you know where for instance a I prefer to call it a brain implant rather than a mind implant but you know it doesn't make any difference um if if some corrective you know to neural firing patterns 
can can actually be of medical benefit, go for it. But of course, the notion that you you know some company has ownership of you is is deeply repulsive, you know, deeply dystopian. I mean, that's that. This this is where this world that we're living in interferes with, you know, what you might call a brighter fruit future coming from technology, you know, where, where money considerations and ownership considerations can actually impair somebody's health. You know, I mean that happens in 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 the broad all the time, but but this is a dystopian world. But that doesn't mean that that you know it isn't useful to explore those areas for the benefit of of folk. And uh, unfortunately, of course, medical research being what it is, is there'll always be an argument that oh, we're doing this because it will you know potentially solve this problem or that problem, and and therefore the question of ownership has got to be there in the background all the time anyway. That. What if you do cure this or do that? Are you then going to say, yeah, we can do it half a million bucks, please, you know, um, um, if you want it. Um, so there are those deep ethical considerations. Um, but at the moment, um, You know, we haven't even talked about, you know, what makes us happy. What can we do as a human species to be more together, to be more happy? Because obviously there's a lot of craziness in the world at the moment. Yeah, and 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 we've been naming all the dystopian we have. consequences of, of... We went there. You know, the way we're going with it. <laughs> <laughs> and And, you know, I, I don't have anything particular original to say about this deeper question, you know, because, you know, we know, you know, in, our, in the depths of our own being, we know individually what would make us happy, you know, and, and it's also a very well-researched area, you know, in terms of the things that make people happy. And, and they all have to do with connection, love, community. Um, um, I would say, um, you know, some of the things that are not often mentioned, but, but you know, which I think is a deep consequence of some of the journeys into consciousness is a sense of feeling at home. So, so I think, you know, a lot of our condition can be expressed as, for many people anyway, as being a stranger in a strange land. You know, to 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 take a biblical phrase, and because one feels a stranger, and be, because one, you know, doesn't feel satisfied or fulfilled. You know, we're looking for gimmicks and toys, and you know, maybe if we were cleverer and or had more power, had more money, da da, um, that would do it. But that's satisfying. And and um, um, in the end, it, it it I think it comes down to being simpler, um, being more in touch with our feelings, 
it's lovely if you have a community, friends, something that you do that floats your boat. You know, we're all born with certain gifts and whatever and, and uh, can all do something. And if one feels one can do that and gets appreciated for doing it in some way, and then one can feel valued. Mm. I, um, I, I think what you're saying is... is yeah. Is, is so true and I, I produced a video recently where I spoke about how humans these days in history, we weren't privy to so much information. We've constantly got the news up, we're, we're hearing about all of the things that are going around the world and I think what we sometimes lose is that community. In the olden days we just used to have our family, our friends and the community around us. We weren't privy to the whole globe's problems and one of my messages that I said to people in this video was you know even if we solve all the mysteries of the world the strangeness the conspiracies we'll still be stuck with our friends and our families and our communities to care for and when you lose sight of all of that you lose sight of yourself and I agree we're, we're very much almost as connected but as divided and as lonely as ever. It's a loneliness pandemic that we have at the moment and loneliness kills. There's research about this. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, loneliness is a deep problem and 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 they're all connected together, these issues. Yeah, feeling a part of something bigger as being, being apart from everything and anything bigger and so on those are simple things but they're very deep things and and um, and difficult to attain things in the world as it's presently constituted i think and the culture that we're we've fabricated in our driven ways but i know many many folk and many groups who are trying to work in a different way You've obviously got such a large body of work that's out there and you've, you've, you've researched for, for so many years. What would be the, in, in terms of a, a final sort of message to people listening to this, what would you want, what do you want people to know? What do you want people to really think when they think of with, in regards to your work? Well, um, in, in, in regard to my own work, quite apart from my own personal inner explorations and so on. The work itself takes you all the way from, from that simple, you know, question you asked at the beginning, where is consciousness? And the realisation that, that actually, you know, this world around us is part of our conscious experience. So we're already connected to it in a way because we've had a hand in... You know, the, we're, actually, we're living in a peculiarly human world because other species wouldn't experience the same energies and information in the way that we do. It's totally governed by. But, but that is kind of the, the starting point for a whole philosophy that ends with this position that I call reflexive monism, which is that... Um, can be summarized as, you know, we live in a universe 
however you conceive of it, which manifests in terms of infinitely number of very creatures like ourselves, and we're a particular configuration of that, that in turn have the ability to experience the universe in which we're embedded, of which we are an expression. And in participating in that, we participate in the process whereby this universe realizes its own nature or is experiences itself. And from that participatory position, whether we like it or not, <laughs> we're already part of the nature of being. And, 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 and the more one feels, you know, one is an expression of the universe engaged in this curious exploration and, you know, finding our way through all our struggles and pains and whatever, and, and hopefully getting more in contact with the deeper recesses of our own being, yeah, we get more of a feeling of we're doing something, you know, with, with the journey we're on. I bet it's been such a journey doing this kind of research on consciousness and obviously having your own consciousness as well. It must be be fascinating to, um, to to be learning about it. I love learning about, I was reading something about the mind the other day and then it got me really thinking about my mind and how would you describe the the, the journey that you've had in in a few sentences? Has it changed oh, it's, a lot? It's, it, it, yeah, I'm very lucky really. You know, I, I, um, I took a big risk all those years ago because when I decided I was going to study consciousness, that was a, a, a great way to put it potentially of putting an end to my academic career because actually conscious study of consciousness had been banned from psychology at the time that I started looking at oh. it. Um, but but there's something you know completely open-ended about it all. So so uh, I have fascinating conversations all over the place and I mean all sorts of interesting people have all sorts of interesting experiences and I've had very interesting experiences as well. And so, so it's like an enormous playground really, you know, work is, is, uh, I enjoy, you know, that, but I also enjoy the personal explorations as well. And so. What would you say has been the most profound um, personal experience that you've had in regards to consciousness? <laughs> well, I don't usually talk about those, um, but I've had some very deep experiences which, which give me, if you like, a direct personal experience of the things that I've been talking about. But there are many ways of having those experiences. There's, there's not just one way. I've had some very powerful experiences of, you know, the deeper nature of things or that seem to be the deeper nature of things. Let, let me put it as carefully as I, I could that way. And um, uh, a typical thing that people say with some of these experiences is that they, they, they seem more real than real. In other words, what we normally think of as reality is seems more real than, say, a dream. And then some of these other experiences seem more real than our normal realities. That's a salutary experience. 
what kind of experience? It's it's a little bit hard for me to. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. So I'm I'm talking about mystical experiences. So, so so William James, you know, is actually most psychologists for many psychologists. It's for many psychologists their favorite psychologist. You know, whatever whatever persuasion they are because he, he wrote some great standard textbooks on psychology, but he also wrote a book on um, the varieties of religious experience, and he has a particular chapter there on mystical experience. And in his day, um, he and his friends um, uh, um, were experimenting with nitrous oxide, and... Um, he was having what he described as mystical experiences then. And he, he's, he was giving some of the characteristics. And one of the characteristics was the sense of unity. The unity, you know, what, what seemed to be a world of diversity was ultimately unified into one fundamental reality. And uh, another point that he made was um, that um, um, the ontological import of these experiences was was astounding. They were just so powerful, it's hard not to believe them, so to speak. Um, and then he said something very sage as well, which is an acceptance of the, the situation we're in, which is that if you've if you've not had those experiences, there, there's no obligation to believe somebody who has says they have, you know, and I completely identify with that, you know, because you, you can only be authentic, you know, given your own experience. And you say, oh, so-and-so sounds quite interesting, but, you know, I'm not quite sure what he's talking about and it doesn't fit in with my belief system anyway. And, and given that that's the only basis on which you can proceed, that's an intellectually completely defensible position and it probably is the position I would have taken. When we're thinking about a mystical experience, just for the, the listeners who are, are listening to this, are we talking about if we take like psychedelics or something that results in a mystical experience? What could a mystical experience look like for someone who's listening to this and thinking, what's a mystical experience? How would I know? Well, many people have. Uh, there are many. There are many people who have, in different ways, something like a mystical experience. And and what 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 often, you know, for some people, it, it's a feeling of suddenly being you know overwhelmed by a kind of love of a kind that 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 envelops them, and it can be spontaneous, you know, or or it might be a consequence of a. A near-death experience or, or a trauma, it can be uh, often associated with light um, of a particular kind. Um, within some traditions, it's a kind of deep sense of emptiness, an all-encompassing emptiness that's also a fullness of some sort bit like you know the ground of being from which all things emerge with other people it's it's a, a kind of contact with a overwhelming energetic form of being that that 
can constantly shape itself into any anything. This is I'm taking this line from a wise woman I, I met, you know had some interaction with because she put it so well. You climb to the top of the ladder only to realize that it's leaning against the wrong wall. And and um, the whole problem with with a midlife crisis is this feeling that there is a self that hasn't been fulfilled in some way. So the whole notion of self-fulfillment, what does it mean for the self to feel full? And in this way of thinking, it's, it's whenever one actually does tap into these deeper recesses of part of one's own nature that are seeking to be expressed in some way. And, and that can be in little things, in everyday things, in everyday relationships. In um, uh, uh, It doesn't have to be these grand experiences. It's, it's all part of, of finding a place of, of poise within this kind of flux of you know, this challenging world that we're all embedded in. Very interesting. Thanks for, for sharing that. And I think that's such a, a nice note to, to, to leave on. So thank you so much, Max, for, for coming on the show. It was, wow, it was, it was very interesting. And um, like I said, consciousness has been on my, my mind for quite a while, to be honest. So I was <laughs> so happy that you, you were able to join us today and, and really share all of these things. So thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Brian. Yeah, nice to spend some time with you. Likewise.